beaming yellow 24 karat gold heavy intricate jeweled earrings layers upon layers of gold necklaces all synonymous with the south asian culture right but these gold pieces hold stories and history that have been long forgotten my name is Anisha Palmer. I'm a multidisciplinary artist and a jewellery designer. I create empowering statement adornments inspired by my family's migrant journey that spans three continents. With the support from the Arts Council, I have spoken to a range of people within the South Asian diaspora about their gold jewellery, what it means to them, how these pieces have travelled through migrant journeys and the memories these pieces hold. Hi, how are you? How are you? Yeah, good Hello. to see you. Hi, friend Ronnie. Hi, Hi, nice to meet you. Take your time. Yeah. Look around. <laughs> so we're at the final episode, and boy, do I have a special episode for you. Today, I'll be talking to industry professionals. Shalini Gupta Patel, founder of Red Dot Jewels, a UK-based Indian fine jewellery brand offering handcrafted, Indian-inspired, semi-precious and precious jewellery. I'll also be talking to Jayant Raniga, Chief Executive of Pure Jewels by Bhanji Gokuldas, who specialise in fine jewellery, so your traditional gold jeweller. He is a ninth-generation jeweller, so the trade has been passed down in his family, and they were the, one of the first East London-based South Asian gold jewellery shops as we know it. It's going to be such an interesting conversation. Both of them are wealth of knowledge. All the stories we've spoken about this episode will really put it a bit more into context from the professionals, from the experts. So myself and my co-producer and editor Molly visited Pure Jewels on Green Street in East London. When we visited the shop, we recorded this interview while the shop was open and it was great to see the customers come in and look at the beautiful gold and see that the tradition is still thriving. Amazing. That's amazing. So, so let's start with just introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. Yeah. I'm Jayant Reniga. I'm the third generation in this business, but I'm a ninth generation jeweller. And uh, this is a business that my grandfather started in Nairobi in Kenya in 1950. So you can imagine when he was uh, around 18, 19 years old, him and his friends jumped on a ship and sailed to East Africa from, from Gujarat. Yeah. And I'm sure a very similar yeah, uh, background very similar. to yourself. Um, so, our, uh, so we've basically formulated our brand around that journey and, and the emotions and the, the, um, the thought processes that people will go through when they're embarking on something new. I mean, even, even today, you know, the, the fears of going to a new country, the fears of going into, uh, you know, new, uh, pursuing and exploring new, new prospects um, are the same emotive uh, ideas that uh, people would experience today. Yeah. So we feel that our brand is highly relevant to everyone today who have been courageous and empowered enough to explore their dreams. Yeah, exactly. And our, our family said it twice. <laughs> they yeah. moved from India to East Africa and then East Africa yeah. to, to, U, to UK. UK. So Absolutely. they set up businesses in two different countries in one from lifetime scratch. from scratch, which I think is something really special that not not a lot of people have that story, and I think that's where the resilience of starting your own business really comes from. Yeah, and that lack of uh, fear, you know, and that 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 sense of sort of courage that um, that it's almost like 
you know, things will just, just having that conviction and belief that things will fall into place. If you do things nicely, properly and positively and honestly, then, then there's always longevity and your reputation carries you cross borders. You know, and it's that, it's that belief, it's that belief. And I think that's what's kept us going. I mean, we're, we're now the oldest, most established jeweler in the Southeast. And we have the privilege of looking after the fourth generation of the same family. So we hear stories week in, week out, where a customer would walk into the store and say, oh, by the way, your grandfather made the wedding jewelry for my grandmother. And then my dad would have made the jewelry for that couple's parents. And I have the privilege of looking after the, you know, creating and designing the jewelry for that couple. That's three generations and then they and then they will come in with their child newborn child and buy jewelry for yeah. for their children as well yeah. it's four generations and that's a privilege so one one of one of the uh, interesting things about our role as a family jeweler is the fact that we're required literally from birth our service are required from birth to death so you know when a newborn has arrived uh, there will be always be a gift of gold and unfortunately when people pass away especially within hindu families part of the ceremony is to present a small stamping which is an infusion of five elements like gold silver brass etc uh, where uh, they're mixed together and that becomes part of the uh, final rite ceremony so it's literally a responsibility for life you know a family jeweler means family jeweler Tell me a bit about that family jeweler concept. How did that carry through from India to here? Well, I mean, if you think about it, we've migrated with our core customer. If you think about who our customers were, mm. uh, they were people from the South Asian diaspora who had traveled to East Africa from India. It's a well-trodden path. Mm. Um, you know, they'd sailed on ship, you know, 20, 21 days, cooking dal on the deck. You know, when, when, when my dad and my uncles and my grandfather first came into this country in the 70s, they were designer makers. Yeah. yeah they had a yeah. workshop. We were the first South Asian origin jewelers in the whole of East London in uh, 75, and that was in Manor Park. And uh, guess what? The basement was our workshop. Yeah. And I grew up in that workshop. workshop. You know, he had his client base, and uh, he, he used to make to order. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people would just place their sort of blind orders and said, okay, we want three rings, four rings, based on your design because they trusted his design work and his taste so much. Yeah. And uh, he'll present that and they'll say, wow, this is amazing, and that's it, job done. So they trusted him to just go for it and design it. Yeah. They, there was nothing that was you wouldn't show. Have, in those days, there weren't showrooms yeah, where exactly. you know, you've got a selection of product and people coming in and being you know, fussy about, okay, I want this, this, this. You know, the, the, the jewelry buying was very much uh, centered around um, the, the patriarchs of the family. And you know, the, and uh, you had Diwali coming up, or you know, other occasions coming up. Yeah. You know, children were being born. So these were all occasions that were celebrated with gold. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and the orders were replaced by the patriarchs of the family, and uh, they'd come in and just just purchase. So it wasn't in those days. I think there was this sense of um, uh, you know, jewelry was very much given as a gift. And there was obviously obviously that sense of investment and and value. But it was just just presented, and uh, and I think people just liked receiving it. Yeah, exactly. So why why do you think it's so inherent in our culture 
buying gold you know what's what's your take on that well there's there's a couple of things so if you look at it from a spiritual point of view gold uh, having gold come into your house on auspicious occasions is about prosperity it's you know it's uh, it's about celebrating uh, the goddess lakshmi and so there's a there's a deep spiritual reason why you know gold is celebrated in that way because it's the purest form of any commodity and it's it it becomes part of your wealth so i think that's where the tradition for gold has come in obviously those values have changed the ideas have changed etc but uh, people could always rely on their gold because it was so transportable yeah. they could probably rely on their gold more than they could currency because even in those days the whole world used to speak gold even today that's a that's a very core uh, idea surrounding you know the popularity of gold this is something that will never ever die out of popularity why do you think that why do you think like our, our kind of tradition of buying gold won't die out well there's two factors here okay so you've got the uh, you've got the very patriarchal masculine reason why gold is purchased it's a store of value it's it's you know you purchase it because it's it's part of your wealth and then you've got the emotive elements which is uh, very much the the female angle on this that oh you know i feel empowered when i w- wear something so precious and so valuable i feel that you know my my value is attached my personal value is attached to to this preciousness uh, there's that element but there's also a, a certain latent weight if you look at the properties of gold there's a latent weight to it there's a latent luxury there's a certain warmth when you touch it against your skin it has a certain emo- emotional evocation that uh, that is just addictive so it's a combination of things you've got the you know the mechanical reasons of buying gold which yeah, are not very you know the logistical elements but you also have the emotive elements where you know if i was to ask you a question why are you addicted to gold Okay, your default answer would be, oh, because it's valuable, it's a store of value. No, 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 no. Listen to my question. Why are you addicted to gold? And then you start thinking about the emotive reasons of why you buy wear yeah, gold, because it is about the luxury and the warmth that that material has. If you think about the the uh, the properties of gold, the physical properties, if we you know if we if we were to geek this out a little bit, then you put gold on your skin. It's such a conductive material, it, yeah. will, it will match your skin yeah. temperature and it becomes part of you. So imagine it's, it's, you, you put a certain material on your body and then it becomes part of you. Yeah. And that feeling of, of you know, that, that fluidity between physical, metaphysical, etc., I think is quite interesting. And the healing properties of it as yeah, well. Yeah, because you've got copper in there in the alloy, you've got silver in the alloy. And one of the things that my grandfather used to make uh, in, in the tail end of his, his life and his career in our workshop was he used to physically create artifacts and jewellery which, um, which would fuse copper, silver and gold together. So he did a lot of experimental work in that. Did you know you can have green gold? Yeah. yeah you can get purple gold and chocolate gold and all sorts of beautiful variety when you look at the metallurgy of gold yeah uh, there's such a huge plethora of shades and there's a certain depth isn't there so yeah. you, when you look at it visually when you look at it uh, aesthetic when you look at it physically and feel it on your skin no wonder people are addicted to it and, uh, and that's in the dna and i don't think that can ever die how have you seen the habits of buying gold jewelry change over the years yeah, so you know when you've got uh, a situation where tra- when you when you look at the traditional values, oh, you you know when you get married, you have to be wearing gold on your wedding day. Mm. That's all changed now. 
you know, weddings are a lot more about fashion. It's a lot more about coordination. It's a lot more about a complete look. Bollywood has had a massive influence in that. So you've got these massive pieces, you know, on the neck, and then you'll never get to wear that piece again, you know, for any other function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it just seems like a terrible waste. So this has really driven the whole uh, costume jewelry uh, industry, which is great. But what has happened to gold as a result? Does that mean that people are not buying gold jewellery anymore? Absolutely not. They are. People are being a lot more practical. Priorities for buying lots of precious jewellery might not be practical later on in life. Um, So uh, with that note, a lot of families, what they're doing is they're saying, look, we really want you to have some nice pieces that you can wear. You can can go to reception evenings. You can, Mm -hmm. when you're visiting friends' houses, practical pieces that you can wear more regularly. And, and as a company, we really celebrate that and we encourage that. I'd rather present jewellery to our customers that they're going to wear more regularly mm-hmm. than sitting in a box. I would be mortified if I present a piece of jewellery and it never sees daylight. It's wonderful to hear that there's a place for costume jewellery and gold jewellery, and Jane sees it like this, that they both run alongside each other instead of them competing with each other. And it makes me reflect on my own pieces and how the jewellery makes you feel and the occasion that it marks, despite the material that it's made of. Yeah, yeah. so we're, we're, I, can, I can talk to you all day about costume jewellery as well as precious yeah. metals. So costume jewellery isn't a threat to uh, precious jewellery, it's complementary. It's the same customer buys both products. Okay. okay so really you and and the and and the purpose has evolved, of course, but uh, but people buy. You know that's costume. It's it's a quick fix. You you could decide that you're walking down the street. You could either have a cup of coffee or buy a few trinkets off the shelf. You buy a few trinkets off the shelf. You put it in your purse. Four days later, you'll forget that you've even bought it, and it's still in its original bag. So it's a quick fix for the afternoon, whereas precious jewellery is a lot more considered, it's a lot more important, it's a lot more personal. And so there's space in an industry for both. If anything, the consumption, consumer market for jewellery as a result has expanded. So where people may start off with, uh, with uh, costume jewellery, eventually that's helping to grow. The gateway to... The gateway, it's a gateway into precious jewellery. You know, our jewellery needs to be seen, our jewellery needs to be worn, and our jewellery needs to be enjoyed. So, so we've, we've really been designing according to that element. So have you say your designs have got more um, simpler and more westernised over time? Yeah, so we have to evolve. Yeah. You know, we, uh, so if, I, if you were to ask me, Jay, what is your number one responsibility as a brand in the UK? Um, you know, we, it's very easy for us as a company with, with the longevity and the reputation we have in the industry to just sit back on our laurels and say, well, you know, we're, we're bungee oculus. Of course, people are going to come to us, you know. Uh, but that's such a wrong attitude. And uh, we have only one responsibility as a company is to make sure that we are relevant to our customers all the time. And that for me is so important. We can never ever take our relationships for granted. And the day we take our relationships for granted, I think it will be the day that our brand loses a bit of its shine. We educate customers, you know, the importance of hallmarking. Because uh, you'd be surprised, even today, how much ignorance there is about the, the you know, your rights in terms yeah. of what what needs to be the there. 
yeah. yeah, from the SF, absolutely. And yeah. small, so small considerations like that, yeah. that that really you know continuously helps us build trust with our customers. Hundred percent. And I think I think the more people know about um, their kind of technicalities behind what they're buying, the more interested they're going to be in wanting to buy those pieces. And I think as generations go on, like you said, it was built on trust. But I think now, as a, as young British Asians, we're so much more savvier when we're buying stuff. We want to know the ins and outs of what we're buying, the sustainable focus of it, how it's made, where it's made. Transparency for me isn't about how something is priced. Transparency for me is who has it affected. Yeah. What's the journey that this piece has been through? Who was the cargo that made it? Yeah. Okay, who designed it? How many hands has it touched? Who were the collaborators? How many skills have been involved? Mm. Because it didn't come out of the ground like that. No, no. I don't think people understand how much it takes to make something. From what I do with my work, I think being really transparent about about how I make it and sharing about how I make it, you really see that connection and you can tell the handmade qualities through it so people appreciate that. And I think obviously with gold jewellery and real jewellery, there's there's so much more labour that goes into it. But this is it. You see, when you look at fine filigree jewellery, you know, with that sort of fine wire, can you imagine how nimble those hands have to be? And, um, and then... It, Customers, if they don't know how things have been put together, then I can't blame them for being suspicious, you know, about the pricing that we're putting forward, you know, in, in front of that product. But when I joined this business, I thought to myself, well, it'll be a complete waste of my education if I didn't have a bigger mission to actually create that awareness and actually make a positive impact while I'm the flag bearer of this company. And it's a privilege for me to be put in that position of responsibility. And, um, and you know, we have the clout, we have the reputation and a voice. Yeah. Then, quite frankly, we need to use it in a positive sense. Yeah. So that's why we're, we've always been on a mission to really highlight that craftsmanship is important and needs to be respected. And our craftspeople need to be respected as well. And our designers need to be respected. Yeah. Okay. But I promise you one thing, I'm on a mission to, uh, to absolutely educate the buying public and help them understand what really goes into it, into, into our product, end-to-end. In, end. And even in, um, in India, okay, where a lot of these craft uh, skills are still existing, it saddens me when the craftsmanship is measured in terms of the wastage on top of the gold. And that's a very obscure and very bizarre way of, of looking at pricing. Will you explain that a bit, what, that, what you mean by yeah. that? So very often when you're, when you're talking to um, manufacturers, when you're talking to wholesalers, when you're talking to traders mm. okay, who are selling gold ornaments, mm-hmm. um, it's whatever the gold price is plus a percentage covers the cost of the craftsmanship and the design and everything. And very often the terminology used in our industry, it refers to that, um, that, that value add, it refers to that as wastage. So what is the wastage on this product? So if I have such a huge problem with that terminology... Yeah, of course, it, de- it sounds like it's devaluing it. It completely sounds like it's devaluing. It's, it's, it's used very flippantly. It's, uh, it's, it's a very um, a masculine word in that sense, okay? It's insensitive. I think that's so important because the power of words can make or break. I mean, look, wars have been created on the power yeah, of words, right? Of course, and and of peace has been obtained by the power of words. So using using language, I think, is really, really important. And you, I know I've seen you've done some events in India and spoken. So how have you, how how is the industry quite different, gold industry different in India to here? 
would you it's, say? It's all very much weight driven. There's 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 a there's a belief uh, certainly with the Indian diaspora in India that gold is their birthright and buying gold jewelry close to the price of the commodity is is their you know absolute solemn right mm. um and um and you know oh, yeah, you know making that piece wouldn't have made that level of effort but there's a lack of transparency in terms of how things are made we i mentor and we have and i also have a company in india as well now you know we're interacting with craftspeople, with with um, you know with designers, and the lack of understanding in India about intellectual property is bewildering. <laughs> Absolutely bewildering. Yeah. In fact, I think that's the case. It's a cultural thing in the whole of Asia, and that's China and India as well. So this sense that um, everything's game. You know, uh, you know this whole copycat uh, culture that exists. This sense of you know herd mentality, which is again a very if you think about Western ideals, it's very much about independence. It's about uh, doing your own thing. It's about finding your own space. It's about uh, carving your own path. Okay. Whereas in India, everything is done in herds. In a way, in Asia, it's it's very much a cultural thing, um, and that's why so much copying happens. If you look at the Indian uh, jewelry market at the moment, there's no luxury brand, not of the ilk that you see with uh, with the European houses. Yeah. You know, I mean, name me one luxury brand in India, in the jewellery space. Luxury brand requires heritage. That's, that's the thing that baffles me, and I think has come up again and again in these conversations. We think of Tiffany's, Cartier and whatever, but we're born with it. Like he said, when we're born, we're given gold jewellery, we go and people buy us gold jewellery, where this innate culture of having gold jewellery is so ingrained in us that luxury is a given in in the asian diaspora yeah gold jewelry is a necessity yeah it doesn't it's exist in in that luxury sense yeah. but uh when you look at the traditional houses when you think about cartier you think of you think of the maharajas mm, when you when you yeah. when you wear a cartier piece uh you think about the pioneering techniques that he brought to the bench you know how he used platinum uh, in the most minimal way because it's the only material suitable to have almost like invisible metal where only the stones and the gems were visible okay he pioneered that that's a real story when you think of Louis Vuitton you think about adventure you think about travel you think about oh my god you know if I'm traveling with a trunk you know I'm, I, it's, there's a sense of aristocracy there okay you feel important and those are the emotions that only luxury brands can evoke because there's a sense of craftsmanship and realism that goes into it. They're storytellers, Absolutely. and I think, and I think that is what what will what will take you know like brands. I mean, like us. I know what I do is very different, but that's what's taking us forward is being honest and transparent about this wealth of diaspora story that we have. Yeah. That maybe our parents maybe found it traumatic to talk about, but we're we're seeing the value in that now. We're using that to kind of propel our brands forward. Well, I, and and quite right because if you think about you know you were born in this country, I was born in this country. Okay, if we look at uh, our cultural difference, okay, where you know we've got very deep Eastern roots, and that's East African as well as India, uh, but we are British. We're born in this country, you know, and uh, and we're a hybrid culture in that sense. Uh, but that that's the same for every immigrant and every person who is born in this country who whose parents and uh, you know uh, and and grandparents are coming from a different country yeah that's yeah. a that's an identity crisis everyone has yeah. if they're not you know racially part of this country
So the hybrid Jane talks about is something that I speak about in my jewellery brand with the work I create and with my research. I've been fascinated by cultural codes and specifically within the South Asian diaspora. I say South Asian, you know, South Asian is such a diverse range of subcultures and cultures within South Asia that come into that. We all have our specific codes, whether we're like myself, Gujarati British or Punjabi British or, you know, Sri Lankan Tamil British. We all have those mix. And I think the subcultures we create within that are becoming more and more distinct and unique to who we are. You know, we pick and choose parts of those cultures that apply to us, which means for every single one of us within the diaspora, what it means to be British and what it means to be South Asian, whatever you identify as, that is so specific and special and unique to who you are. So who am I? Where do I belong? Because you're not Indian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You go to India. They don't accept okay. you as fully You're Indian. not Indian. No. And no. in the UK, um, you're, you're not, not English. You're not British. You're not. Fully no, no, no. You're British. You're not English. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So who are you? You're a hybrid. Yeah. British Asian. I, th- I think. I think. And that's why the word British Asian British comes from. from. It's a hybrid. Yeah. It's not even fusion. You have two wardrobes. Yeah. There's no fusion about it. Yeah. Yeah. You've yeah. got a you've got an English wardrobe and you've got an Asian wardrobe and guess what? They are two distinctly different wardrobes. But I think I I see it as a point of view is like the amazing thing about it is that you can pick and choose but bits of different cultures that kind of make you you. So for me, being what is British Asian to me is completely different to what it is for you, because we we have different different weights to what to what Indianness we have in us and what Britishness we have in us and that's why I think it's so special in terms this kind of culture isn't celebrated enough because it's the cultural clothes we have are so specific to the individual person and that's why stories like this are so important I mean if you think about the journey I'm on with this brand I am literally as a current fa- uh, uh, flag bearer um, you know, running this company, um, I'm exploring my own identity to a certain extent. You know, I'm using this opportunity to explore that, and uh, and saying, okay, I have, I've realised I've got certain responsibilities. We were lucky enough to get up close and personal with some of Jane's pieces. Jane's brought out some of their signature pieces, which showcase the style of pure jewels. It was such an honour that Jane trusted us to show us these pieces up close. I felt like I was holding pure heritage and craftsmanship in my hands. This ring, I'm like, (laughs) I love this ring. The design of it is stunning and exactly, I can see the head of the elephant. You could feel the love and the personal connection that James had with these pieces and also how great of a salesman he was because I didn't want to take the pieces out of my hands. I wanted to take them home. Not this time, but hopefully Uh, one day. uh, These are natural uncut rose-cut diamonds set in 22 karat. Is this a Gundan setting? That's 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 traditionally a Kundan setting. We call it Polki setting. Polki. But this is actually it. traditional Kundan setting where the stones are miniature, much smaller than actual Kundan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these are smaller Polkis or rose-cut diamonds. 
And uh, when you look under eyeglass, you'll see how beautiful they are. And just run your hand over the surface. Uh, yeah, again, so smooth. So my grandfather always used to say that a piece of jewellery needs to look beautiful from the front and, and the, the back. back. We're now pushing boundaries in terms of uh, creating... Uh, What's your you big, know, big dream generation? for the future of Pure Jewels then? We, for, so as for our company, we want to we be the uh, first British Asian luxury brand that has deep Eastern roots. So our, our cultural past uh, inspires the the product development and the collections that we, we move forward with. And do you, do you think the next generation of your family will take on will take on the business? So your your children, can you see that? Yeah, I mean my sons are eighteen and sixteen. Mm. Um, they've uh, they, they're getting involved with the business. Uh, my older son, you know, is looking forward to reading history uh, at uh, UCL. Yeah. Um, it's going to be his decision. It's going to be their decision. If they come on board and then take this business forward, it will be completely their decision because it's their passion. Yeah. The only reason I do what I do is because this is my passion. Definitely. You know, it's, I'm, not, I'm not building this brand or this business because I want to hand it over to the next generation. If that happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. Yeah. And I want to carry on the legacy as far as I can. For me, diversity is so important to the strength of our brand and uh, societies have to evolve and we have to be more and more integrated and uh, the fact that we have something to offer, okay, we have a, a cultural richness that we can present to the world. We have our version of the classic engagement ring, we have our version of a halo. If Pure Jewels was to design, you know, a particular trilogy, it will be our version of a trilogy. You know, I'm very grateful, touch wood, all our, all our bridal engagement ring designs are now completely our own product. And we have contributed to that world of design, our version of that particular staple. We want to tell our stories. We want to show you the little flick on the edge of our, you know, our engagement ring that twirls slightly upwards and, and, and explain to you where that detail came from. You know, the, the, little, the little feather on top of our Vinyasa collections, peacock head, okay, which traditional craftsmanship we took inspiration from. You know, which molding from our collection, which stamping from our collection introduced that idea into that product informed that product and informed our designer to think in that particular direction. Since costume jewellery and the overall aesthetic for the bride is now at the forefront, I was interested in knowing who was buying gold now then? Was it still to mark a special occasion? And is the gold industry being affected by the rise of brides buying costume jewellery? It's really interesting to see that the overall aesthetic for a bride, to be honest as it was for myself, takes more precedent over the value of the pieces that they're wearing. Our fastest growing market is women buying jewellery for themselves. That by far is our fastest, fastest growing market. Self-purchase. So, so you say, it's, it's, you, you spoke about it was a patriarchal thing back in the day, obviously with the connotations of dowry, but now that's changed so much for it being purchased by women for women now. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's amazing how, yeah. how the uh, community has evolved. Uh, if I was to look at our focus as a company over the next five years and how we're designing, we're now not designing for men to buy jewellery. If you look at the way our business is structured, you know, I'm a guy, 
my dad is a guy. Our brand narrative is based around the story of a, of a gentleman. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you can't get more patriarchal than, than that, yeah. okay? And that's a great positive thing about our business, which is fair enough. But what about all the women? You know, who are the women involved in our business? Yeah. So the feminine touch is so important for us as a company. Um, and, uh, and that's something that, you know, we need to address. Yeah. Stepping my toe into the gold jewellery industry in the UK was fascinating and Jayanth is really our gold jewellery expert. You've heard his voice through the various episodes within this series. Speaking to him, I felt myself nodding and in awe of all the knowledge I was gaining from him. I think, you know, where he said that our customers trust us because we migrated with them. You know, we have, we've had shared experiences. So once we're their family jeweler, we're their family jeweler for life. That blew my mind. What else blew my mind is, you know, the fact that the purchasing of gold jewelry has changed. Instead of parents purchasing it for a daughter, a woman's going in with her hard earned money as her own security and saying, I want to treat myself to a piece that I'm going to cherish for years to come. If that's not empowering, I don't know what is. Been a, it's, a, it's been a great opportunity. Thank you for hearing our story. And uh, no, it's been fun. And uh, I can't wait to sort of keep you updated. I'll now be speaking to Shalini from Red Dot Jewels. Actually, one of my stockists in the UK, he stocks my jewellery pieces in her store. And when we connected and we're talking about all things jewellery, we just clicked. We had so much love for traditional handicraft in India. And actually, I love the gold jewellery as well, really connected us. So it was a really lovely conversation. So I'm Shalini and I founded Red Dot Jewels back in 2011. I'd just like to remind you here that all these interviews took place during lockdown. Shalini is actually sitting in her store in London as we do the interview. The shop is also really busy, so there's a lot of background atmosphere noise, but I think that just adds to it. Um, and it was actually came from a pure place of loving the traditional and antique styles of real gold jewellery. So if you ever come to my house or to my shop, we have a stack of books uh, written of collections that have been put together. I know you and I have I some love, of them. I love the books. I similar. found the old photos when I came to your store and I was looking at the books, you know, just to like buy some of the ones you had. I was like, oh my God, you, I think you've got the best collection. <laughs> have I? Oh, brilliant. Yes, no, I've got the Vogue and I've got, you know, I've got a good mix of the Western jewellery books. And um, I think the favourite one is that V&A, um, yeah. that extraordinary collection. Beyond um, extravagance. Beyond um, extravagance, yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, I think with getting married and gold jewellery being a big part of what the parents hand down to their daughters so it definitely was I I got married almost 15 years ago now so I was given I chose my own jewellery in fact I'm one of those people who chose my jewellery pieces before I actually picked my outfit there's uh it's nice through doing red dot I've met a few more brides who also have the same thing they're thinking well actually I like those colours so let me get my outfit made. So I remember thinking I went for one really traditional Gundan 
South Indian made piece, which was mm. full of tourmalines and blue sapphires. Wow. And then I went for one diamond piece for my reception because it's all yeah. about the Hollywood glitz and glamour. And then the third piece that I went for was a Victorian bulky a set which had big yeah. bulky diamonds, yeah. um, Baroque pearls. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's something that you could wear with a Western dress, which I, and I have worn it uh, to my cousin's receptions with a sort of a black ball gown or, or a, you know, an, an evening dress. Um, so they were my three main pieces and everything else was a small thing, you know, like the garas and yeah. little earrings and pendants. But I remember thinking I want three, three different pieces so I can style my clothes around the pieces. Yeah. I think when you've got a good golden piece, a good bulky piece, a nice diamond piece, you've got your main pieces and it for me yeah. it's always about the stones and the colors being used so and the different craftsmanships the different styles of making jewelry as well very traditional to india yeah very traditional uh, but actually the the diamond piece was made with much more of a western setting with rose quartz and it was on a platinum so a silver colored base because yeah. normally we wear a lot of gold but no so it was a silver colored base with a nice pendant here but with three rose quartz nice. so that perfect nice. lovely pink yeah just so nice. I thought that was another color as well I go to India almost every year and I like to I thought oh I'll buy myself some pieces it's been a few years since I've been married let me maybe I'll buy you know an emerald piece or a sapphire piece and I just was shocked at how much the gold price has risen yeah. so as we know Asians investment security we buy gold or in times of uncertainty or when you when you manage to maybe get some of a some money together you can um buy something so i thought oh i'll buy myself something new and i was i would say i think the prices went up about 300 percent. so literally in those five six years the gold price rose massively and that's when i thought about red dot um because i do travel a lot in india i love going to markets i could see there was a craftsmanship so the same craftspeople who make real gold diamonds they were also able to make beautiful pieces with the same intricacy using materials such as sterling silver and then even um uh, good metal alloys high quality metal alloys usually they're imported and they were making really beautiful pieces so that's when it began i was in a corporate career i didn't really love yeah. i took a week's holiday just to explore right do you like, is jewellery your thing? Do you really want to go down this route? Because my background is economics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've got an economics degree. Nothing, but however, I've always been interested in art, visited galleries. I think when every single one of my friends got married, I was a key person in helping decide how the look should be styled, what colours should be worn. So I guess that artistic side was always there, although I didn't have formal training as how to draw and sketch pieces I did know how to put things together there's a sales course at the GIA do the Gemological Institute of America yeah 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 so I loved stones um, and I yeah. thought oh maybe I want to go to diamonds maybe I want to design you know you experiment you think maybe I want to design these engagement rings but while I was doing that course I liked the big opulent statement necklaces and I kept going back to Rajasthan uh and the heritage pieces and what the moguls wore and the stories behind the pieces that's yeah. the thing that really interested me so i thought well do i start do i go down an antiques route do i think well actually let's let's look at what british asian brides are wearing yeah and i felt because a lot of people my age are the first generation born outside of india yeah 
they had this mixed wardrobe. You've got your Western clothes, you've got your um, Indian clothes, and actually how how fashion forward you were was really dependent on how connected you were still to India. Yeah. So, so many of us are from that East African background, yeah. in which case a lot of my friends and family who have that background, they don't, they, they don't actually have that link back to India. Mm. So yeah. the fashion here was always about five years behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so it was same for jewelry, same for um, clothing. So we would go to Southall, Green Street, Wembley, and we think that's that's where that's the latest fashion is. Yeah, I was fortunate enough um, because my mum and her whole family are from North India. I used to go back every year, so I never bought my clothes in England, and I yeah. got to see the latest fashions. So we got to see what what they were wearing over there, and I always bought. They had the latest yeah. stuff there. You could get everything made to measure, and we were there every year anyway being able to have that connection with India, seeing how well things are made there, seeing that actually you can start making and really work with good trusted manufacturers to start yeah. making some really beautiful bridal pieces was where it began. And I just started exploring. I literally traveled over a year to the main manufacturing hubs, Bombay, Delhi, all over Rajasthan, Calcutta, yeah so those were the four hubs and then from there smaller cities and once you start going to markets and meeting people you really get a feel for what's what's happening and how so interesting yeah and that that was it and I took a I took a risk going out there and seeing how it's made first hand that must have been incredible and especially all over India did you see differences in the way things were made in all those different places each region specializes in something. Yeah. So yeah. look, a lot of the pearls of my jewelry might come from Hyderabad. I've not been to Hyderabad, but I know these small pearls come from there. Gundan, which is, um, you know, the technique of yeah. putting wax into a metal mold and then you put a silver piece down and then you put the glass in. Gundan now, because it is such a popular kind of jewelry making, they make it in every region of India. Yeah. I can tell you often when I look at piece of Kundan, I'll know, okay, that's from Calcutta, that's from Gujarat, that's been made in Delhi. For me, the purest and the most beautiful form is made in Rajasthan. Like, yeah. I just love the way, yeah. and craftspeople are all over the country, but yeah, definitely. I think Meenakari work, they do it in Gujarat because Gujarat is a very, um, it's very commercially, they're very quick. So as soon as they realize something's working, they're able to manufacture on a big, big level. But I think if you go to the heart of where things were created, and for me, that's Jaipur, the style of Meenagari, which is that enamel painting, there's a fineness to it. And there's a difference from region to region. Speaking to Shalini about traditional methods of jewellery craftsmanship in India and especially Jaipur took me back to my trip to Jaipur in 2013 during my master's studies where I went out to Jaipur with my mum and dad and was able to see the production methods firsthand. So I got to see Meenakari work, the traditional style of enamelling, intricate enamelling, detailing on the back of these jewellery pieces, almost like a woman's personal pleasure. Now it's also used in the front, but the pieces as beautiful as they were on the front, they made sure they were on the back. And Jaipur will always have a close place in my heart. And like Shalini mentioned, it is it is the centre, the epicentre and the best place to go for jewellery production. A lot of 
the high street jewelry brands we see today all have their manufacturing factories in Jaipur because that is that is where the craftsmanship comes from the traditional techniques that have stayed alive mixed with now modern technologies but yeah Jaipur will always hold a close place in my heart and my latest collection that came out in August is inspired by the pink city Jaipur as well make sure you check it out How did you have to alter the taste for occasions here? So I thought, let's move away from crystal and metal, which are what I saw being worn here. And I said, let's take people back to the real core and the heritage. Because people either had real gold and everyone say, oh, it's, I don't want to wear my mum's gold. I don't want the gold. It's, you know, some people call it waffle iron gold or yeah, you know, everyone's got yellow, their own yellow, yellow, gold. Gold. Yeah. yellow, yellow gold. Exactly. Everyone's got a name for it. But there was a way for us to be able to combine the, the two. So the first collection I showcased at a lovely gym. I think it was this sport or David Lloyd at the time in Northwood, which is in Northwest London. I hired out the place for four days. I put a magazine advert in into a local magazine here set up a Facebook account, asked my friends and family to come along, sent out an email, and that was the marketing plan. Obviously, friends and family come to support you, but because we were in a gym, as people were walking through, and it's an area where there's a real mixed, um, you know, real mix of people, lots of Asians, um, as well as um, local people, we had, I remember we had a beautiful scented candle on, we decorated the place like it was a palace, we had some decorators come in, as people were walking past, they all came to have a look what's going on in this exhibition room on the side. Yeah. And in four days, we pretty much sold, wow. I think, 80% of the collection, which made yeah. me think, wow, people, one, like my eye for things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two, there is a market for it. Because, you know, you worry that, will they want to pay this much for it? Will they not? Because I was not selling eight £10 items. It was it was slightly more than what they would normally spend. But when you look at how much time is spent making it, yeah. it yeah. they valued it. So then that was the start to make me think, right, this works. And honestly, within a month, we booked our first bridal show. And that was where you build your confidence from, right? As a designer, as a brand owner. Yeah. The first time I came in the shop, I think straight away I felt like I was transported to Jaipur. It's not just because of the decor, it's because you've got that traditional handicraft pieces around you. You can you yeah. can almost imagine the person making them when you when you touch them, when you feel them, when you see the intricacy in them. Do you think brides are moving away from both The British Asian is not so attached uh, the our generation yeah. our parents still are they see gold as an investment which is why they still want to hand it to their sons and daughters when they get married obviously it's more of a it's given to the daughters so it's 100 different here but as i've said to you in the mainland india the jewelry budget is usually more than that entire wedding budget like they see it as a it's almost like giving your daughter a house it's like here have this amount of jewelry and gold this is your security um but in in the british as british asian women they're professionals they're working they're educated they're spending their money on designer brands other things that are important to them they don't think so much you know we're much more of a consumer society we're not thinking about oh let's have you know two kilos of gold in a safe at home and 
the other thing I hear a lot is, oh, well, it's only going to be in the safe. Yeah. I'm never going to wear it again. Choose a classic piece of jewellery that you think, yes, your parents feel happy that I've given you something and that you can actually wear it, not that it's left in the safe. Yeah. And we've seen plenty of weddings in the 80s. Yeah. I love those photos where there's bright yellow here. It's it's just disconnected from what's going on with the, with yeah. the outfit. Yeah, yeah. But I think our kind of bride, the Red Dot Bride, appreciates a regal heritage. They want that opulent look. When I went to Shalini's store for the first time and saw the incredible intricate pieces, costume jewellery, you know, based on silver, not gold, I think they hold up par with these traditional gold pieces because the craftsmanship is insane within the pieces that she has. The detail and intricacy created within these pieces is so beautiful. I then went on to ask Shalini about her own personal collection of gold pieces she's either been handed down or gifted during her wedding. So last time I went to see my grandma, she gave me a gold bangle. Because yeah. I just kept seeing her wear it. It's a really nice thin bangle. I said, I could wear that. I just was looking at it and it looks really nice. And, you know, Nani Ma's been out. She goes, no, no, you take it now. She goes, you know, I'm just trying to distribute whatever I have left to my granddaughters. My grandma's given jewellery to my mum. It's also a responsibility to look after it. Yeah. But my mum's got some beautiful pieces. And the love of jewellery came from... As a child, going with my mum to the jewellery shop and my Marcy's, because we'd always shop in India. And Tell me about that experience, going jewellery shopping with your family in India. We loved it. I, You know, I think our annual trips to India, I don't think I thought about it much, because as a child, you're just enjoying the fun. Mum, with her two sisters, the Marcy's, right? We'd land in Bombay, right? So we'd head over in these small auto rickshaws to a jeweller. I just remember my eyes literally going wow when I looked at the pieces just as a small girl and I'd be listening in and then when they talk about the gold weight because everything's valued yeah yeah on the calculator that sound of the calculator even if you go to a jewelry shop here they're working it out and you're thinking what are you working out here but okay and then there'll be a price at the end of it but yeah there's some beautiful pieces that were bought in the end and I remember I would always get quite involved in oh no I like this or no I don't like that and going to a jewelry shop was really good fun I think talking to Shalini, you can tell that we've got such an appreciation for for India and the fact that we've been able to go back and visit. Like Shalini, I was taken back to India almost twice a year with my parents. So I got to see my root culture firsthand. And you can see that that's really inspired Shalini with Red Dot Jewels and the work that she does today. What's really lovely is she talks about women getting together and going shopping sharing that love of buying jewellery together and I think that is something that keeps coming up in this podcast is that over maybe buying jewellery, sharing jewellery, showing each other the outfits we're wearing for weddings or you know sitting together and talking, we've been sharing these oral histories with each other for years and I feel so blessed that I've been able to document those oral histories and some of those conversations, I hope, within this podcast. And I think the role of a woman within the jewellery buying and the jewellery wearing and within these gold pieces is so important because these stories have been passed down word to word. And I hope through this Empowered Adornment project, I'm able to document these oral histories before they're lost forever. 
glamorous, right? And these pieces are just so beautiful. And you realize in India, there's always a gargle at the back of the shop. So you'd always go there and we'd always have repairs. We've always got repairs to take in, right? You take your repairs to India, get, get everything fixed. And then you kind of look, or what are they doing? So yeah, I think I was always intrigued by the process. And the shopping experience is just so different, so isn't it? Different. You feel like you're royalty when you go in a shop. You're treated like so well, aren't you? Yeah, well, one, they know we're NRIs, which is non-resident Indians, for those of you who don't know. it's They just know it. They can tell from our faces. Do you think costume jewellery is going to overtake gold jewellery in terms of fashion going forward? So that's a really, really good question. The mindset of when you're buying your wedding jewellery, it's all about the fashion and the look. But I think our generation, I can't remember the last time I bought real gold. Yeah, same. Right? Same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there'll always be that demand there. But cost is a big factor because you used to be able to buy a full set for 500 pounds yeah and now you, a set even the smallest one you're looking at three four thousand pounds so one thing i love talking to my brides about is the pieces they're buying from us they are pieces they can wear over and over again a bit yeah. like they're real gold and um separate them so often yeah. i have a choker and lower necklace yeah. they're always separates yeah. and so many of our brides tell us like if they come in a year later with their sister or cousin or a friend getting married they'll tell us oh shalini do you know how many times i got to wear my choker or i still wear my dick gun earrings and they're using it i think jewelry should be worn and it my wedding shopping trip was the two-week trip mom and dad with me yeah. So it was such a great experience. It's so much fun. It's the, it's the biggest shopping spree you're ever going to have. Typically, a bride will come with maybe a sister or cousin. Salini talks about the experience a bride has when she comes into her shop. And you can't hear it because there's quite a bit of background noise. But she basically talks about the experience she loves to give the bride. So at the back of the shop, it's almost like you're going into a Rajasthani dressing room. And as a bride, you're sat in front of this ornate mirror. You've got your wedding blouse on and your juni, you know, the scarf that goes over your head when you get married. So she'll normally have her blouse. We always tell our bride, bring your blouse with you because it's all about the whole look. And bring your dupatta. We don't need a skirt so much. And then you've got Shalini and her team advising you and helping you style your jewellery pieces. You've got a table in the middle with your family sat around it and they're watching you getting adorned. Going into the store is a ceremony. It's a ritual. You're going there mainly with the women in your family and you're there with your wedding outfit and you're imagining what you're going to look like on the day and you've got this whole team and you've got this experience of being in a regal dressing room. That moment when we put the dupatta on, we almost brace ourselves because there's often a tear or two because a mum will suddenly see her her young daughter for the very first time looking like a bride. They get so you can really see how costume jewellery plays a part within this whole industry of South Asian jewellery and how diaspora brides are really focused on that overall look in the recent years being that ultimate traditional bride has become more and more popular and I think Red Dot Jewels offers that but like Jayant said when speaking to him the same women who are power independent women who earn their own money who are their own security are coming into his shop and buying one-off everyday wearable pieces that they can cherish and love forever.
So both industries have their own place. And they help and complement each other so beautifully. I do love the role of gold in in jewellery to be worn by young British Asians. During lockdown, gold went sky high. So anyone who had gold and sold it at that time, you did really well. And again, it's always when there is global uncertainty, they always say gold is, you put your money in gold, you'll never go wrong. It's security again, you know, we we think, I think like COVID made made us think nothing's secure. Things, Things in life can change like that. But I think we're so lucky to have gold as security given to us. Yeah. It is, it is. Yeah. And no, I think it will continue. It will just the quantity of what's being bought will reduce, I yeah. think, with time. Speaking to both Jayanth and Shalini was amazing. It was so lovely to speak to two people within the industry, how both costume jewellery and gold jewellery complement each other and don't compete, how we are all part of this industry and the fact that we support each other. It was actually Shalini who mentioned I should speak to Jayanth. And Jane, you know, is such a supporter of my work as well. And he really sees value in what I create, even though it's not from precious materials. Shalini from Red Dot Jewels really also loves what I create and supports me by stocking me and introducing, you know, her whole realm of customers to my work. I think if that doesn't show the support we have within the industry, I don't know what does. I'm really glad that I was able to end this series with these two amazing professionals in the industry. I also want to say a huge thank you to all my participants who have been part of this podcast series, who have blessed me and trusted me with their amazing stories. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting to all of those who have shared it on their social media, who've messaged me and said, thank you so much for creating this because I've been able to pull out pieces or find out something new about my own family's oral history. Keep following my website, anishapalmer.com and me on Instagram at Anisha Palmer London for updates on the Empowered Adornment Project. Also, a huge thank you to my co-producer and editor, Molly, who's been working really hard behind the scenes, putting every single episode together from the interviews. These handcrafted gold pieces take on the material form of a family's legacy and accumulate personal stories as they pass through the hands of their keepers. Keepers which they choose. Passed through the hands of artisans, then adorned by our ancestors and cherished by us today, transporting us to places we've never been to and telling stories we've never heard, but the truth we know through the energy they exude. We now adorn them with pride, feeling our ancestors lifting us as we navigate new cultural codes in the land where they brought us for better opportunities, in the hopes we can make them proud and carry on their legacy. This is Empowered Adornment.